Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and welcome back to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. We are glad that you've chosen to spend some time with us today as we near the end of the first season of this project. It's been a lot of fun, and it's been very encouraging. We've gotten a lot of strong response, a lot of good response, a lot of direct response, people reaching out and sharing, and so thank you for that. The encouragement goes a really long way to helping us feel like we're doing something good, that we're doing something meaningful, something you want, and uh, we want you to be a part of the conversation. So find us on Facebook and Twitter. There's Kingdom Ethics pages on both of those. David P. Gushy is on both of those platforms. Jeremy Hall is on both of those platforms. We want to hear from you. We want to engage with you. If you let us know what's good, uh, where we can improve, what you want us to talk with you about, we we want that. We want you to be in this with us. So this first season, this experiment we've been doing has been following the Great Moral Leaders for a Divided Age book that David and Colin uh, put out. That, how's that doing? I'd say pretty well. It's, um, it, it's getting some textbook adoption. Uh, the sales are, are steady. Not spectacular, but all right. Very good. And it's an excellent book to think so one of the things that I'm a nerd about are timelines. Yeah. I, each moral leader has a timeline, and it makes me so happy. And all of them kind of mesh together. It's beautiful. That that piece alone for me was worth the purchase of the hardback and also the audiobook. I don't know if you've listened. It would be weird to listen to your own book in audio. Um, it's up there behind me. I just I, I haven't done it yet. I've been listening to it to prepare for each of these podcasts. I go back and listen to the chapter. And it's really, it's really well done. And it's really good. good. Um, I got really excited listening to the Vazel chapter uh, last night. And I recently reviewed the uh, Yusefi chapter. And that was, I got really energized from hearing her story again. And so we encourage you to check that out too. It's on uh, Audible through Amazon if you're into that sort of platform. So there's only a few moral leaders left. And one of them uh, is... Ellie Vazell, uh, who we're going to talk about some today, who um, only passed away a few years ago. Was it 2016? 2016. That's right. Yeah. And at that time, he was a professor here in the States still, right? Yes. Yeah, he, uh, he never really retired. Um, he was uh, in his upper 80s um, and was still teaching uh, mainly at Boston University. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... Um, I've been thinking a lot about him. I, I was asked to do uh, a new book review, kind of two two books about him. I believe they are behind you uh, on the shelf there, Jeremy. Those two on the far side there, yeah. Um, two books that have just come out about Elie Wiesel. One is called Elie Wiesel, Teacher, Mentor, and Friend, edited by Alan Berger. And the other, Witness, Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom by Ariel Berger. So, and we shared some of those, uh, some quotes from Witness online recently. That's right, we did, yeah. Uh, and so I did a composite uh, book review of those two books for the Christian Century magazine. That'll be coming out soon. I, I, it helped to refine my understanding of, of what Elie Wiesel was like in the last stage of his life. For a lot of people in America, the one thing they read by Elie Wiesel is Night. Um, the harrowing, about hundred page memoir of it's his short, yeah, it's very short of his experience at Auschwitz. 
and Buchenwald, where you know where he lost his mother and his dear sister, and ultimately his father. The book is really, in many ways, a drama about the father-son relationship mm-hmm. as they attempted to survive Auschwitz and then the death march and then Buchenwald. Um, so, what, what yeah. age? So, I read that book in the f- either fourth or fifth grade. I was ten or eleven. That's early. When my school gave me night, and it's thinking back on it, that seems early. That's too early. Um, yeah. I've seen it assigned frequently to sixth graders, and uh, mm-hmm. sometimes to freshmen. Um, mm-hmm. And I've also seen it on college curriculum. Where do you th- is this? Is this the book that everyone should read? And when do you think they should hit it? Uh, personally, I would wait till junior year in high school. And I would not assign it without plenty of uh, preparation and uh, and then the historical context to make mm-hmm. sense of it. A lot of times, well, you know, uh, the way history is taught, my students tell me when I teach historically related courses that the way history has been taught is just so disjointed and lacking context that... Mm-hmm. Anyway, so things happen without a reason encountering or, each other. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, without and a connection. Yeah. I've spent the last ten years working almost exclusively in the church. I'm not this way anymore, but for the last ten years, it's been almost entirely youth ministry. And I was struck in Decatur. I was in Decatur, Georgia, a very educated uh, part of the Atlanta area. That I had an entire freshman class that had they were unfamiliar with the term Holocaust. I mentioned it in sort of a talking about uh, human nature and what happens when sin builds up a head of steam and Mm. can become the backing of an empire sort of idea. And a freshman in high school raised his hand and said, what's the Holocaust? And I had freshmen and sophomores that had no idea what I was talking about. The Nazis and Hitler... Things like that only exist in video games. Wow. Well, that's disastrous. And we're seeing some polling that is showing that the living memory of the Holocaust uh, has faded a lot. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I was, th- I was thinking, when you think about if you read Night in School, that's a step forward. But what you get is really the, the heartbroken reflections of a 16-year-old of course, he's writing it later. He didn't he didn't publish it in English until about 1960, so he would have been 32. Mm-hmm. And th- went a long time not writing anything. Right. Yeah, he did. In fact, he took a 10-year vow of silence, but then he, he was finally convinced to go ahead and publish his his story. Um, but anyway, so you might think the end of the story is Elie Wiesel doesn't believe in God. You know, he says, you know, uh, they killed the about the place that killed my God and my faith forever. You know, there's so there's there's that dimension and just c- kind of a corpse-like survivor, and that's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. But there's more to his life, of course, and I'm interested in the rest of the story. And so the the chapter tells about the rest of his story, just in an outline. It goes something like this: like a lot of refugees, um, children refugees especially, a group was sent to France. And uh, these were orphans. So, so um, you know, the Nazis left the wreckage of families where there were people to survive at all. 
and there were a group of orphans ended up uh, in Paris. Elie Wiesel was among them, and that was where he began to rebuild his life slowly. We learn eventually that two of his three sisters survived, but we never hear about them. Mm-hmm. Um, he mentions that one time in his memoir, but I, apparently they they did not want to be part of his published story, and so that was that. Um, but he was he, you get the impression he was essentially very lonely and on his own. His mother is dead. His father is dead. His grandparents are dead. His community is gone. He can't go back to uh, the Romanian community that he grew up in. Um, he's, he's afflicted by nightmares, uh, by depression. His body has been damaged. Um, and, but he, he's still very smart and very thoughtful and a quick study. And he gradually begins to rebuild himself intellectually and gradually, spiritually goes to the Sorbonne, gets a degree, uh, studies, um, philosophy and, um, and finds gradually finds ways to practice his faith and finds finds ways to fight off the despair and the and what he frankly calls the madness of what mm-hmm. he has experienced becomes a journalist uh of some international significance ends up uh, being a journalist for an israeli newspaper um apparently he had wanted uh to be asked to go to israel during the 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 founding of the state as a as a kind of a a militant mm-hmm. uh, fighter, but they didn't want him. So, um, I'll probably a really good thing. Um, so, so he, he ends up coming to the U S uh, for journalism, uh, in the U S in a very pivotal event, he gets hit by a cab and nearly dies. And that's written about, look at that book under, yeah, that book Dawn. there, Dawn, uh-huh. yeah, or originally called the accident. Um, and, uh, so three, three, his first three novels or books have been packaged now as a trilogy, night, dawn and day. Yeah. Uh, the, the book I believe is day is, is the one that, that was called the accident anyway. So he eventually settles in the U S becomes a U.S. citizen. Uh, the book night, which started off slow in attention and sales gradually takes off and he becomes all of a sudden, uh, one of the leading voices of what becomes known as the Holocaust, that wasn't, there wasn't a name for it. Right. Right. Well, it becomes known as the Holocaust and he, and the book ends up getting a huge head of steam. He ends up writing more. So he becomes a novelist. And then eventually, even though he never got a doctorate, he was brilliant. He knew, who knows, eight, 10 languages, incredibly learned in that great old European Jewish way, ends up becoming a professor, um, mainly at Boston University, mm-hmm. but other places too. Lots of honorary doctorates. Lots of honorary doctorates. Um, and then um, he ends up becoming uh, drafted into Holocaust remembrance, including the design and founding of the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington. Has his fingerprints all over it. Um, and and then eventually, once he got a Nobel Prize for Nobel Peace Prize, he ends up becoming one of those globe-trotting activists for mm-hmm. human rights and justice and dignity and so on, and um, so it's quite a story. But those these two books that I just mentioned, "Witness" and the new book called Elie Wiesel, are about what he was like, kind of in the last stage of his journey. The book called "Witness" by Ariel Berger 
is from a guy who spent years and years with Elie Wiesel at Boston University in his classroom as a teaching assistant and who developed a very close personal friendship with him. So it describes what he was like as a, as a professor, as a teacher, and it sounds transcendent. I know people who studied with him and they said uh, he, he made the classroom magical. And then uh, the book uh, by, edited by um, Alan Berger uh, is kind of reflections on Elie Wiesel as a teacher, a mentor, and a friend. And, and so when you, and his, the depiction of his personal character, of his way of relating to people, the loyalty of his friendships, his generosity with his time. Um, like, for example, hundreds of people would take his classes at Boston University. And apparently, uh, by multiple accounts, he would offer brief one-on-one meetings with whoever wanted to meet with him, the legendary Elie Wiesel. Uh, and so there might be 300 students, but he, he didn't have a lot of time with 300 students. The math mm-hmm. doesn't add up easily, right? But he would spend 20 or 30 minutes with each one, and people consistently said uh, it was like I was the only person in the world for that time. He, he, uh, he gave me his full attention. Um, so I just think it's a, it's a fascinating life of learning, of activism, of survival. And increasingly, and this came up a lot in my class in Macon last semester, um, a story of, of mental health. There's a lot of discussion of mental illness uh, among the young these days mm-hmm. in particular. And um, he, he faced his own challenges after everything that he experienced. And, and so I would like to know more like what he did to take care of himself. What was he in therapy? Surely, but it's not something that I've read about, at least not that I would remember. So, so what was his inner journey? How did he hold himself together? But anyway, just a fascinating person. So I, I think people need to read Beyond Night and get the bigger picture. Right. Well, he writes 57 published works. Right. Uh, plays. I think he wrote a cantata. He liked to sing the old songs. Um, there's a video online of him doing that. Um, you, if you have not watched Vizel speak, you must. Yes. You must go watch a lecture, a story, a presentation. Yeah. Go to YouTube right now. Find him. The way his presence in space is shocking. His it, silence is amazing. It's like he carries the wounds, the the grave wounds of the historic Jewish trauma with him in a way, internalized. Um, and um, he, he speaks almost in a whisper um, with that accent, this kind of indefinable Hungarian, French, mm-hmm. American combo. Um, and there is a lot of intermixing of silence and speech, and he writes about that a lot. He was influenced by French existentialism when, uh, when he was in, in France, and, and, um, and also by the Jewish tradition with its ability to handle paradox mm-hmm. and questions and uh, you don't answer a question with an answer, you answer a question with another question. But part of the paradox, the biggest paradox, was silence and speech. He would say, as to talking about Auschwitz, he would say, I must speak about it. 
but I must also remain silent. If I remain silent, I'm not bearing adequate witness, but if I speak, I'm also not bearing adequate witness because no words are adequate for the evil and suffering that was experienced, for the uh, brutality and the evil. So nothing will work. Um, And so somehow he mixed silence and speech in a way that was for him profoundly unsatisfactory, but was his only option. It's interesting about night. When you read it in school, you see it's 100 pages. Wow. But in the original version, it was like 900 pages. He cut it and cut it and cut it intentionally to get more silence and less speech. And and I think, I don't know, uh, the evils that were experienced, I think, were so ineffably evil that in some cases, have you ever heard that phrase, this is unspeakable? Mm-hmm unspeakable evil should not be spoken of. And so that that's part of what's going on with the brevity of night. Fascinating figure. One of the things that I find most interesting about him is that Eastern Jewish continental blend of being willing, being able to sit with the difficulty. Um, it has to do with his ideas about memory and holding on and remembering and speaking of and honoring the lost and hoping to be remembered by God, but also the way that his philosophy and his experience inform his theology. Right. That's not, it's not a death of God theology. It's not a death of God theologian. Easily misunderstood, but that is correct. Yep. It's, and I did that. I, I've got a paper I could go get you about Elie Wiesel as a death of God theologian. Um, <laughs> college. Kyle, what are you going to do? You know, <laughs> that's how you learn. Right. Uh, but his, his God is present in that defeat in ways that are really hard to, to get language on. He never lets God off the hook for the Shoah, for the Holocaust. Um, he never... Real quick about what I just did with language there. The word Holocaust, is, is that Vazell's term? Or was he just one of the early adopters of it? This is disputed. One way to think about it is, um, as people were trying to come up with words for what had just happened, um, there was a stage where at least a few people, I don't know that it was only Vizel, were saying the Holocaust we just experienced, lower case H, that word is from the Greek holocauston, which means offering, burnt, burnt mm-hmm. offering, offering by fire. And so it'd be like saying um, the fire truck arrived on the scene of the blaze and discovered a holocaust. Right. Completely consumed yeah. as if, right. yeah, a burnt offering. That, yeah. but I'm, So basically he helped to turn lowercase h to uppercase h, the holocaust. The holocaust. Yeah. Which... Is that Greek word for burnt offering? A lot of the academy and contemporary Jewish thought has switched to the word Shoah, which just means fire. They've yeah. taken the meaning out of that. I I haven't heard Vizel respond to that. I never term. I never saw him use the word Shoah. Um, but I I mean I've done, my knowledge is not comprehensive. I'd but. be interested in what he thought of the removal of the meaning in that term that's that's just musing well what's interesting about that is like if you if you go into a a catholic church and hear 
the scripture read, occasionally you will hear the word Holocaust because Catholic, the Catholic Bible translation is based on the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. The Greek um, used holocauston to translate, I think it was Ola, uh, burnt offering. So holocauston meant burnt offering in Septuagint Greek. And so by picking the term holocaust or holocauston and its origins, no, this is nerd stuff, people. Okay, I'm doing this. We're doing this right now. Um, they what they were doing was was connecting to the to the biblical tradition, right? And and the religious dimension. Why do you do a holocaust? A holocaust in um, Exodus or something? Yeah, you, it's to appease God. You're making an offering to God, and um, by fire. And and so I. I think what they were doing was, and this is so uh, kind of classically Jewish, they were they were working with this old idea, and they were saying, was God sacrificing his people on the altar of Shoah or, or, or of, of Auschwitz? Or could it also be said that the Nazis were sacrificing the Jewish people as a holocaust to their own mm-hmm. God? of race and nation or even Hitler. Mm-hmm. Some more some more weird stuff. So it's this I might even not leave this in the podcast. Um when I when I was at First Baptist Decatur, um I had the opportunity to lead one of the FBU Wednesday night discussion mm-hmm. programs and uh they gave me this they let me do the seven churches of revelation. They had eight weeks they needed me to fill and I said I know a thing mm-hmm. that takes seven weeks and a debrief right and we did uh revelation and if you go to pergamum one of the churches there's a section where it talks about a believer who is sacrificed to zeus on the th- what the writer calls the throne of satan which is the throne of zeus and pergamum one of the wonders of the ancient well, yeah, world yeah the altar shaped like a throne that was built at pergamum and a Christian evangelist was burnt in a brass bowl as a holocaust oh. to Zeus. Now, where is this ancient wonder of the world today, Dr. Gushy? Is it in a museum somewhere? It's in Berlin. In Berlin, that's right. Yes, I visited that when I visited Berlin. The yes. Nazis took it. Yes. They took it, and they took it to Berlin, and Hitler liked it so much, that's what his circus is designed after. Wow. The big, the U-shaped... Yeah platform that he speaks from at the major rallies in berlin the berlin circus is based on the throne of zeus the throne of satan from which is the first place he talks about the final solution publicly and i don't know what to do with that but that seems important well you know people thoughtful observers noticed as early as i mean as early as hitler came to power that there was something quote religious going on mm-hmm. there were some ancient spirits <laughs> yeah uh religious slash idolatry slash demonic but with a lot of christians buying in as always right and um anyway well that was an interesting digression but I'm, i know right uh, i'm i'm kind of glad we did that so but i think that that might be a pretty good segue to, to talk about wiesel's faith became all wrapped up in the paradox of what does a what does 
a Jewish person make of God and Israel after the Holocaust? Right. And he ended up with an approach that has been summarized as a theology or a theodicy of protest. And he actually wrote a book called The Trial of God, which was about, apparently, an actual trial of God that took place at Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. There, George Clooney stars in a movie adaptation. Is that right? Yeah, it went. It was an indie film, went under the radar 2011. Oh. It's stunning. Okay. Um, yes, I believe he talks about that trial of God in Night, and then says, and after declaring God guilty, everybody returned to prayers. Um, by the way, I'm teaching through the book of Job right now, and uh, we're at about chapter 9. And um, as I recall, Job feels like he's on trial, and eventually he's going to turn the trial the other way, and God's going to be on trial uh, for uh, treating Job unjustly. By the way, do you notice how how much um, freedom and boldness we're talking about here in, in arguing with and about God? Mm-hmm. Christians often... Uh, don't grant ourselves that kind of uh, freedom to deal with paradox. Especially not to our leaders. Right. With paradox, argument, um, difference of opinion, uh, different ways of reading something, that to, to, to hold the tension is open as opposed to having to get answers that are clean for everything. Because mm-hmm, in our churches, doubt is a very dirty word. That's a very dangerous thing. It's treated as the enemy. We try to... Yeah give our students the truth we try to teach people to have faith certainty is such a drug and we are utterly addicted to it at least in our tradition in the american tradition we crave certainty and solid answers and knowing that we're right i think when i when i think about my years as a youth minister thinking developmentally i think you want enough anchor points that people can mm-hmm. build their life around. Here's the things that are not going away, but not rigidity so that when they run into doubts or questions that they, they say, well, I guess the faith can't handle this. I'm done. Exactly. You know, and, and Wiesel, I mean, he's not, this is not youth group 101. I mean, you'd really have to, to, to be ready and have a group that was ready. But, but Wiesel introduces to the Christian world a more radical kind of paradox, uncertainty. I'm going to continue to practice Judaism even though I have lots of questions about dogma at this point, but I'm going to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a part of this people, and nobody, not even Hitler, can break my connection to this people or this God. Um, I only heard Elie Wiesel speak in person one time, and I'll never forget it. I'm so glad I had that experience in the same room with him. And as you said, his physical presence and his his demeanor was extraordinary. But anyway, two things I remember about that. He, he was asked in the Q&A time, what keeps you going? How do you keep going? And he said, study. There's always another book to read. Mm. Um, I wish more of our, of our uh, folks had that spirit, right? But then the other is, he said... Something maybe this was in a Q and A. I don't remember, but there was just line. He said, "You can be a Jew for God. You can be a Jew against God, but you can't be a Jew without God." That's not a typical Christian formulation at all. No, um, but it accepts. You might say the way faith ebbs and flows, especially when you've been through catastrophe. 
Um, but as long as you're keeping the conversation going with God, then you're in a relationship with God. I, I was teaching about this the other day at church, and I said it'd be like, consider a marriage. As long as you're still arguing, hopefully not hatefully, but as long as you're still talking, even you're if together. you're disagreeing, you're together. It's when you retreat to your separate corners and you stop talking that the relationship is dying. Mm. So Wiesel says in terms of God, keep, keep talking, mainly with questions. How, how can we help our Christian faith communities, speaking now as a pastor, um, how can we help teach our people to grapple better? Because we're so, we need that certainty. We, if you want to get in trouble as a pastor, Change your mind about something. Um, <laughs> I've, I've experienced that. Yeah, sure. Having written a book called Changing, Changing Our Mind. Our mind. <laughs> uh, have some express doubt from the pulpit. Um, I think it was Peter Rollins who said, uh, preachers and pastors are the security blankets for mm. the congregation. They believe so that the church doesn't have to. Mm. So if, if I stand up in the pulpit and I say, you know what, I'm not so sure about whatever. I, I make some sort of, I say, I, God hasn't talked to me in a year. Mm. They'd lose their minds mm. because that's their faith that I'm stewarding for them. I, they vicariously experience their faith through the pulpit a lot of times. How do we help our people learn and help us? How, how do we get Midrash into the Christian tradition? Mm. That's a good way to say it. Midrash basically meaning... I ask a question of the text. I have an opinion of the text, only to be, only to have my voice joined by the next person who asks a different question, who argues with my question or with my provisional answer, and then the next person argues with that question and then with the question before. Man, that's I think that's the way to think about the tradition. Um, I think it's learned childishness that we can't handle mm. conversation. Um, paradox and questions um it may be here well maybe here's a theory it may be that modernity and its challenges such as theory of evolution historical biblical criticism mm -hmm. the rise of modern atheism the rise of various challenges to christianity set christianity in a backpedaling position in the west we were on the run and scared. And so the posture that many Christians took, well, some of the more liberal Christians said, we, we must grapple with these questions and integrate them into our faith. But a vast, more conservative section out of which we both come said, no, 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 we just must hold our hand out, athwart all of these questions and say, no, mm -hmm. we're going to hold on to that good old time religion. But what happens is you can't, you can't do that very well. Um, questions will come. If it's not from science or Bible class somewhere, it's just from life. And, and so I think I've always believed that it's best, and I teach my class this way at church and at school, that it's best to engage the questions rather than try to pretend they're not there. Right. The modernity gives us apologetics. Right. We we build systems <laughs> and theories to combat, yeah. to prove, to win arguments. I think one of, one of the reasons that I gravitated towards ethics 
um, in seminary. Who'd you study with, Jeremy? Oh, uh, just the premier Christian ethicist in uh, all of post-modernity. Dun, dun, dun. And also David P. Gushy. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. <laughs> but I think the ethics is the apologetics of post-modernity. Mm. That it's about encounter and lived experience and the proper application of your theology to the world that is what can make the church stand. It's far more compelling than some brittle apologetics about the tomb was really empty or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Evidence that demands a verdict and all that, right? Well, we'd better wrap this up, but we haven't had a chance to say much about Elie Wiesel as a human rights activist or whatever, but... Standing up to presidents. uh There's a lot there, but he, he died in 2016. It was quite a life, and it remains worthy of study, and he was a brilliant writer. And so maybe a place to start is to pick up the trilogy called the Night Trilogy that is now packaged together, Night, Dawn, and Day. Start there, and I, I bet a lot of thoughtful listeners will want to keep on reading. Yeah, once once you get going, he's he's a slippery slope. He'll draw yeah. you in. His memoirs are also brilliant. So, yes. yeah. All right, well, we, with the permission of the publisher, we'll take um, a moment and listen to the leadership lessons from... The, uh, we previously mentioned it, audio version of the book. And um, thanks for listening. Thank you, David. Absolutely. Thanks, Jeremy. Leadership Lessons Elie Wiesel's life and work offer a number of important lessons about moral leadership. Memory matters. We live in an era that is quick to forget. We look forward to the promise of tomorrow rather than remembering what came before. In proper measure, such an attitude can be both healthy and helpful. But our society today is too eager to move on. We lose track of events that came before and become blind to how history shapes us today. The memory of our moral failings protects us from greater flaws. There is power in a depth of knowledge. Elie Wiesel was a chronicler not just of the horrific, but also the humane, and beautiful life that came before it. From his earliest days, he delved deep into his religious and cultural tradition and never stopped seeking new learning. He explored other faiths and belief systems without losing himself in them. Grounding in a tradition shapes us as people, offers examples for leadership, and keeps us rooted in our communities and the people we come from. Unceasing appetite for knowledge, meanwhile, keeps leaders one step ahead. Speaking truth to power is not easy. When Elie Wiesel confronted those in high office, he always appeared to do so not for personal glory or fame, but out of a deep pain he could not contain. There is a dual temptation for leaders, to denounce and accuse on the one hand, and to play along with powerful people on the other. Finding the moral moment and the courage to risk everything for the right reasons is a delicate course to navigate. Words can change the world. Writing puts issues on the map. Good writing transports people. It puts them places they could never imagine, in the shoes of people they might never know, and asks them questions about what kind of person they want to be in the real world. It is wrong to think that all leaders must be glad-handing politicians or the loudest, most popular person in the room. 
some of the greatest moral leaders of all time were the quiet ones, scribbling in a notebook. To watch Elie Wiesel speak was to see speech and silence and suffering blend together into a haunting melody. How do you keep going, he was asked, and you can see why, watching him on tape. The immense pain and effort it took to tell the story over and over was right there on his face. It makes you wonder about the sense of obligation that drove him to carry such a burden, so openly, so viscerally, for so long. It takes remarkable endurance and commitment, just as it takes remarkable storytelling prowess to craft tales that move nations. Wiesel has kept his conscience and ours finely tuned, Robert McAfee Brown said of him. Even his blind spots helped to make us question our own. Elie Wiesel's life was a broadside against indifference toward others, intolerance of those different, and injustice for anyone, anywhere. In the final analysis, he said, I believe in man, in spite of men. He refused to forget evil or look away when humanity did its worst. He insisted on raising the issue and calling everyone, even God, to account. He refused easy answers, and he wrought change at the point of a pen.